0: I'm going to introduce Dr. Burgoyne, uh, and she'll take the stage, and then I'm also going to introduce the person who will be introducing Dr. Mate. So I know you're thinking, that's a lot of introductions, but I promise it'll go fast. Dr. Nancy Burgoyne is a friend and a colleague and the chief clinical officer at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. She's a faculty member in the Master of Science in Marriage and Family Therapy program, a licensed clinical psychologist, and a family therapist who abides by the scientist-practitioner model. She has more than 30 years of experience providing direct service to clients and more than 20 years of training, leading, and learning alongside her fellow clinicians. Nancy, if you could come take the stage for us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce... A friend who, if um, he wasn't my friend and my collaborator for, I, I've lost track, 13, 14 years, this event might not happen because he was the first person. He's the uh, Gabor Mate whisperer in my ear from probably the first time I met him. He said, you know he have, no. you know have to bring in, you know he have to bring in, you know have to bring in. He probably has said it to me probably 35 times. Uh, when we were finally able to host Dr. Gabor Mate, I called him and I said, um, will you please do us the honor of introducing him? So now, my pleasure to introduce Al Ross the he is. Al is a licensed clinical social worker and certified substance abuse counselor, an adjunct faculty member at Loyola University in the Graduate School of Social Work. He teaches substance abuse treatment at the Institute for Clinical Social Work, and currently he teaches trauma-informed social work practice at the Erickson Institute. He is also the senior director of clinical practice at the Juvenile Protection Association, a school-based trauma-informed psychotherapy program for children and their families living in communities located on the west and south sides of Chicago. It is my deep pleasure and honor to introduce to you Al Ross.
1: Well, I I can't tell you what a treat this is for me. Um, I was told not to say this, but I'm going to. (laughs) I want to thank Lonnie and Fan for the opportunity to be here tonight and introduce Dr. Gabar Mate. Um, I've had the honor to be associated with Fan and proud to be here celebrating Fan's 40th cele- uh, anniversary. Fan wouldn't be what it is, what it's become today, without the amazing leadership of Lonnie and the tireless dedication of those Fan team members who've worked each year to put these opportunities together free of charge and so incredibly valuable to all of us. So I just have to say from my heart, thank you, Lonnie. It wasn't until in the realm of hungry ghosts that I found words for my feelings of discontent, frustration, and hopelessness in my practice as a substance abuse counselor. Having experienced addiction and its treatment from many positions, first a consumer, then a practitioner, and then an educator, there had been a pervasive cloud of shame, mistrust, and fear. And then I discovered you, Dr. Mate, and began to consume your teachings and words like the oxygen they were to my being suffocated by stale ear Before you, I had never heard the words trauma and addiction uttered in the same sentence. The impact of that connection has continued to echo daily for me. You gave us all an insight that has allowed for the pain and confusion that so many of us had hidden away in darkness, allowing that experience to come into the light with dignity, humanity, and healing. You boldly speak the truth about the experience of addiction and mental health with understanding and compassion. One can hardly imagine the numbers of lives you have transformed with your teachings, drawing upon a fearless look into your own life, your own personal journey, and your work with others. You have taught both practitioners and those of us on the path to recovering that what was lost, how to have respect for others and ourselves. You have taught us how to ask the right questions, how to respect the decisions made along the way as we've attempted to mitigate the pain of unspeakable trauma. Perhaps most importantly, you taught us how to see addiction as a complex expression of survival. With a deep, heartfelt, and profound sense of gratitude, I am honored to invite Dr. Gabor Mate to the stage to help us learn and be inspired by his words and his teaching and his immense compassion and wisdom. Thank you.
0: And we're
2: off. Can you hear me okay?
3: Can Can you hear me okay? Yes? Yes. Yes? Okay, thank you. Can you hear
2: me okay? Yeah. All right. Gabor, what a pleasure. What an honor to be what he said. (laughs) What I'd love to do is, for for those few, and I'm guessing there aren't too many, but for those few who don't know some of your story, I'd like to start there. Sure. But I'd like to start by inviting all of you who now have a book um, to open it up to page, it would be uh, 14 and 15 which is the start of chapter one, and you'll see this, this beautiful painting by Gabor's wife, Ray, yeah, yeah. of 50 years. And uh, I couldn't stop looking at this painting when I was uh, reading the book, when I started the book. Um, and it's such a vivid portrait of a compelling and poignant story, that's informed your work from the get-go. So I'm wondering if you could start us off there, please.
3: Sure. Well, thank you. The painting is of a photograph, which is in the left-hand upper corner of the painting itself, of taken by of my mother and I when I was three months of age in Budapest, Hungary, in um, it'd be May of um, of 1944 which was two months after the Nazis had occupied Hungary. My mother's rolling in the yellow star uh, that Jews were forced to wear, the badge of shame. This was maybe a little over a month ago, a month or two before my grandparents were murdered in Auschwitz, where my mother and I easily could have been sent to ourselves. So the painting uh, was done by my wife because she said she wanted to understand her husband. And what you see in the eyes of that infant is real terror, real fear. And I'll tell you that a physician who um, looked at me when I was somewhat older, a year old, 11 months old, said that he'd never seen such fear in the eyes of anybody before. So Ray captures that terror in my face and in my eyes that is very evident in the photograph.
2: It's a beautiful photograph, and it walks us right into trauma. Yeah. You talk about in a in a way that is uh, not as colloquial. Big T, trauma, which that is, but you also talk about small T trauma, and I think that's the one that more often gets missed. Yeah. And the one that's so insidious, and I wonder if you could share a little bit about that.
3: Yeah. Uh... If you understand what trauma is, which is not the event, it's not the external event. Trauma literally means a wound, so trauma is the wound that you sustain. Then it becomes clear that people can be wounded in all kinds of ways. You can be wounded people by doing terrible things to them, and certainly a lot of people have that experience, you know, the abuse, the war, the violence in a family, the mental illness of a parent. These are the well-described adverse childhood experiences that have been documented to be related to mental illness and addiction and so on. So there's that big T trauma of bad things happening to children. (coughs) But then there is the suffering that children endure, not because bad things would happen to them, but because in loving families with well-meaning parents, there some essential needs weren't met. And that to the child could be wounding as well. And it can be confusing sometimes because that wounding happens in the hands of parents that are actually loving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very confusing and it, it's very typical for me to give my talk on addiction or autoimmune disease or mental health or malignancy or any number of human travails and um, challenges and people will say, well, Doc, I had those, but I had a totally happy childhood. And it usually, that's when I issue what I call the happy childhood challenge. And uh, I said, are you willing to talk to me for three minutes? In three minutes, it's very easy to show that, yeah, they had happiness, but they also had a lot of pain that they thought was normal. And they didn't uh, compute it. That's traumatic, but in fact, it left a deep scar on their soul. So that's the small T trauma that happens during development when your needs are not met.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's something I know there are many therapists in the audience tonight. Having said hello to many of you, that is the thing that shows up yeah. so much where people are discounting, and, and it, I, it was fine, it was fine. I don't understand why I'm this way. makes a lot of sense. That fracturing of the self. In trauma, that sort of separation. You talk about that in terms of the child's dilemma around authenticity and attachment. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
3: This is a central theme in this culture. I mean, let me ask you a question. I'll ask you two questions and I'll just cut raising of the hands in response. One is Have you ever felt you're in a situation and then you look back afterwards with a degree of remorse that uh, you just weren't being true to yourself. Just raise your hand if you had that experience. Okay, thank you. Uh, raise your hand also if you had the experience that you had a strong gut feeling about something and then you ignored it and you were sorry afterwards. Just raise your hand if you had that experience. But both of these experiences represent the disconnect from yourself because you've never met a one-day-old infant that isn't in touch with their gut feeling, and you've never met a one-day-old infant who isn't being absolutely themselves. So then what happens? I mean, we're meant to be ourselves. Authenticity, being in touch with ourselves, when you look at it from the evolutionary point of view, is absolutely essential. Just how long does any creature in nature, as we used to live until very recently, how long does any creature in nature survive if they're not in touch with their gut feelings. So that's a big need that we have, actually. And the loss of it has huge consequences for mental and physical health. But we have another need as well. And that need is to connect the nurturing, caregiving adults in our lives. And that need is described, it's called attachment. Attachment is the force of pulling two bodies together Gravity is an attachment force, by the way. It pulls two bodies together. In the psychological realm, attachment is the force that pulls two bodies together for the sake of taking care of the other or of being taken care of. Now, for the young infant, in fact, for the young mammal, it's indispensable for life. I mean, of all the creatures, humans are the least developed and the most immature and the most helpless and the most dependent for the longest period of time. It's true of all mammals, and it's equally so, or even more so for human beings. So we have this need to attach. But what happens when, for all kinds of reasons, including the very pernicious parenting advice that a lot of parents are given by so-called experts, Mm -hmm. the child is forced to suppress their feelings. Because the parents are told that when a kid is upset and showing a tantrum, time out. It's that simple. Time out means I'm not going to give you your attachment needs. I'm not going to meet your attachment needs. In fact, I'm going to separate from you until you please me. The message the child gets is if I'm being myself, I can't have the attachment.
2: Mm.
3: Now for the child, there's a million ways that parents develop that message, by the way. Now the message the child gets is, if I'm being myself, I'll lose the attachment relationship. As a matter of survival, the child disconnects from their own emotions and their true selves in order to attach. Now all your life then, now the problem with that, uh, it's an adaptation. The problem with these early adaptations is, they get us into trouble later on. Mm-hmm. So then all our lives, and how many, I mean I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but just ask yourself, How many times have you denied yourself, your truth, your actual emotions, your needs for the sake of being accepted by other people?
2: Mm.
3: And then you get a culture that judges you purely on externals. How you look, how you function, how nice you are to people, how willing you are to conform. So the culture then reinforces that early programming of if you're yourself, you might not be like... So we have Facebook... Facebook. Think of the name, Facebook. You're presenting a face, but not your real face, for God's sakes. You're concocting an image, and then people will like you, and they'll be your friends, if you present the right face. So that we have a, a culture that reinforces inauthenticity. The problem is, as I make the case, That carries a cost in disease, physical illness, and mental illness as well. And it's not anybody's fault. It's simply an adaptation. We lose touch with our authenticity for the sake of acceptance.
2: Yeah, it's interesting when you say it's not anybody else's, nobody's fault. Because when we talk about trauma, yeah. we start looking for somebody to blame yeah. a place to point the finger, a place yeah. to discharge our frustration. Yeah. And you talk about that in terms of transgenerational patterns. You talk about that in terms of the societal, yeah. society conspiring to por- force us into that place. Well, I can give you two
3: examples uh, one is my personal one, and then a more historical one. So um, in Canada, where I live, um, if you look at the indigenous communities, um, high rate of uh, uh, sexual abuse. In some native communities, no girl makes it past 13 without being sexually abused. They have the highest suicide rate, mental illness, addiction rate, um, incarceration rate. 50% 50% of the women in jail in Canada are indigenous women they make up 5% of the population and you can say you know these are terrible parents look what they do to their kids but let me tell you what happened so there's a woman I describe in the book her name is Carlene I met her at a healing retreat that I was helping to conduct maybe 8-9 years ago Carlene is in her 60s now um, late 60s by now I would think When I arrived in in Canada uh, in 1957 as a 13-year-old, Colleen was four years old. She was taken to the residential school, the state-mandated residential school, run by the Catholic Church, where on the first day as a four-year-old, where where Native kids were abducted, abducted by the state and forced to go to these institutions so that they could educate the Indian out of the Indian, as they put it. Carlene was four years old when she made the mistake of speaking her tribal language. That's a no-no. And how she found out it was a no-no is that the teacher stuck a pin in her tongue. And so this four-year-old sits there for a whole hour not being able to put her tongue back in her mouth because she would cut her lips. And that's before the sexual abuse began. So Carlene was an alcoholic by the time she was nine years old, a heroin addict by the time she was 20. Her grandchildren are not dealing with her own addiction. Her fault? Her parents' fault? Whose fault? You know? And this is in a population that parented beautifully before the Caucasians came. You know that that when the Christians arrived in North America, they were appalled by the parenting practices of the natives? Mm. Do you know why? Because the natives didn't hit their kids. Mm. To the Christians, this was sparing the rod and spoiling the child. So it's historical, and it's multi-generational, and then as one traumatized generation, they'll pass their trauma onto the next one, as I did. So the message I got from the world through the stresses and terrors and... Uh, desperation of my mother, who could barely ensure my survival, but she surely couldn't respond to me with the warm, the emotional responses that I required, and then she gave me to a stranger when I was 11 months old. Well, what message did I get? That I wasn't wanted, not lovable. Well, as I said this morning to another group, if you're not wanted and lovable, one way to compensate for that is to go to medical school. No. <laughs> Because uh, because now they're going to want you all the time. (laughs) But being wanted for what you do for people is runaway addictive because it never fills that emptiness inside. No addiction ever does. So you have to keep keep proving to yourself how lovable, how wanted you are. What does that mean? It means I'm not available to my own family. Mm. What message do my kids get? No, it's not. I mean, I would have thrown myself into a fire for my children. But the problem is nobody ever needed me to throw myself into a fire. <laughs> they just needed me to be at home as an emotionally present, available, attuned adult, which I wasn't. Mm. This is why we pass it on, and nobody ever means to. It's just what happens. So trauma is always multigenerational. We can look at systems that induce trauma. I mean, you don't have to look very far in American history to see how this culture historically induced severe trauma in certain populations and continues to. But there's no one individual that you can say is, you know, this is the source, who are you going to go back, you know, you can blame Adam and Eve if you want, you can blame the first amoeba, you know, but there is no, blame is pointless, understanding is everything.
2: Yeah, but too big for blame. Yeah, too big for blame. Yeah. So trauma is pervasive, and so is stress. And in the book, you have 45 pages of references, m- tracking the the, yeah. the literature around the links of uh, between stress and illness, and the impact on our physiology. And I think that with the with the significant rise in chronic illnesses that we see, we're, we're sort of connecting those dots a little bit more. Can you talk about that a bit, please?
3: Sure, those 45 pages of moral references, by the way, are just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this is a long book. It's 500 pages of reading plus index and so on. But when I first when fin- my, my son and I first finished writing it, it was double its length. Because I just wanted to prove everything. You yeah. know, and, 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 uh, yeah. and there's so much, you know, literally, I'm not exaggerating, I collected 25,000 articles in in the research for this book. Then I had to decide which few would I choose. But there's that much literature showing the relationship between stress and illness and emotional stress, the mind-body unity, the impact of trauma, um, which is largely ignored by the medical profession, by the way. Um, But the New York Times finally discovered the wheel two days ago. Um, They invented the wheel. Because they had an article on mental illness, and this is what they said, astonishing, that we used to think of mental health as an individual problem, but actually it's a social problem to do with the economy and and, and the whole culture and so on. I mean, they they could have been quoting my book.
2: They stole your line. They
3: they didn't, but they could have, you know. I said, oh, great, they finally discovered it. And um, I tell you, to this day, the New York Times has never had an article linking trauma and addiction. Not once. Um, six months ago, there was an article in the New York Times. Again, that they invented the wheel. They, um, by the way, the the best sellers list. It won't be this weekend. It'll be the following weekend. They're sort of a week and a half ahead of the printing. Just just in, just just doing it disappointed or
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> this weekend. It'll be in following weekend. But they had an article about. The new studies show that uh, women's emotional states, and particularly if they're depressed, that affects their prognosis of surviving breast cancer. Brilliant. Eureka. <laughs> I first wrote about that 25 year, 20 years ago now, but never mind me. In 1870 or so, there was an American surgeon called James Padgett says that the link between moods and low moods and cancer in women is so clear that nobody can deny it. 150 years later the New York Times discovered this study, you know, so that in 1938, a very revered lecturer or professor, physician at Harvard University Medical School came from Hungary, like me. His name was Soma Weiss. And he said in a lecture to a medical school class that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that emotional factors are at least as important in the causation of illness as physical ones and must be at least as important in the treatment of them. So this is from the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is at Harvard. Here's the joke. Annually at Harvard they still have a day named after Soma Weiss he was that respected but 4 years ago I was speaking to a psychiatrist at Harvard who says to this day to talk about mind body medicine at Harvard is to risk your career that's changing he said Mm -hmm. but it's still difficult you know how difficult it is I wrote this bo- book called When the Body Says No, back in 2003, about the mind-body unity and health and illness, there's a rheumatologist at UCLA <coughs> who read the book, totally changed her practice, started asking her patients about, and there's, there's so much literature on autoimmune disease and trauma and stress, it's, I mean, it's not even vaguely controversial as far as I'm concerned, and she read that book, she changed her practice, and all of a sudden she found she could get people off her medications by dealing with their emotional issues, by teaching them about the stresses that they were taking on in their lives. By the way, I could go on forever. How do we treat most conditions? Uh, Inflammations of the gut, of the nervous system, of the skin, Mm -hmm. of of, of the joints, of the connective tissue. Mm -hmm. Anybody can tell me how do we treat them?
2: Steroids. Steroids. What
3: are steroids? Stress hormones. Mm -hmm. You think we might ask ourselves, Gosh, we're treating everything with stress hormones. Is it possible that this condition has maybe something to do with stress? <laughs> Seems like an obvious question. But this rheumatologist was interviewed for my book, telling me about her success, and she said, don't use my name, because my colleagues will not be able to understand it. So on the one hand, we have this mind-body unity documented by science in tens of thousands of papers. And, uh, and physicians, insightful physicians, have been talking about it for at least 150 years, and it's completely ignored in medical practice. It's almost surreal. Yeah, it's Th-
2: astonishing. Yeah. Well, and one of the places, if we're talking about stress and the impact of stress, the disparate health outcomes for women, for yeah. people of color, yeah. you borrowed um, Dr. Kenneth Hardy's phrase, the assaulted sense of self, yeah. uh, to point to one of these most insidious, harmful uh, effects of racism, which is internalized racism.
3: Yeah, it, it's the... You
2: talk about it, it physically it, getting under the skin.
3: Dr. Hardy talked about it in terms of yeah. racism. It's absolutely true. But this assaulted sense of self, where you basically take on another person's view of yourself. Mm-hmm. That, so you disconnect from yourself. So people who are traumatized in general take on the other person's view of themselves they lose their own sense of themselves. Now this is particularly true of certain racial groups in a racist society. I mean and it has physiological consequences. So just last week there was a study that came out and said that racism affects the immune system and the nervous system and hormonal apparatus obviously immediately. Now we've you know, in in this book I document the long term effects of all that. Which is why if you look at, say, for example, the certain markers of inflammation, they're much higher in, 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 in people of color than they are in many Caucasians, strictly because of racism, nothing to do with genetics. And inflammation, of course, is a risk factor for illness. So in Canada, almost again, to look at our indigenous population, where we used to have no rheumatoid arthritis whatsoever, I mean none, no, an indigenous woman has six times the rate of rheumatoid arthritis than that of anybody else. And, and people of color, and particularly women of color, have much higher rates of uh, autoimmune disease. Again, nothing to do with genetics. Everything had to do with stress of that assaulted sense of self. So that um, as to white women, as opposed to my women of any social class, particularly minority women, but not only. I mean, it's intersectional, isn't it? If you're a person of color and a woman, you can have more risk. Mm -hmm. Why women? Why do women have 70, 80% of autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, scleroderma, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and so on? This is a big medical mystery. We're tearing our hair out and scratching our heads, you know, what's going on here? And people come up with all these fancy theories. It's so obvious. The more stress you are under, the more likely the immune system is going to turn against you. For physiological reasons that are very easy to, tre- uh, to trace. Now, why are women under more stress? A little fact. In the 1930s, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis was about 1 to 1. You know what it is now? Three women to every man. Which immediately proves, A, is not genetic. Genes don't change in 80 years. Number one, it's not the climate or the diet, because that hasn't changed more for one gender than the other. What has changed is outlined in the headline of a New York Times article, which I borrowed for a chapter of my book. It's called Society's Shock Absorbers. Mm-hmm. During COVID, it was found that women take on the stresses of their families and their spouses, and they feel guilty if they're not able to ameliorate the stresses of their spouses or their families. They feel guilty. Why? Because under the patriarchy, they're given the role of being society's shock absorbers. They take on the stress of all the relationship that they're in. But that's been a traditional role of women under the patriarchy. But now, because of two factors, one is just a natural desire of women to be out there in the workforce, that's you know the women's feminist movement, one of its achievements but also because of economic pressure because two people now have to work to make the same living that one person can provide some decades ago a lot of women are out there not because they're trying to um, manifest their talents but simply because they have to go to work to support their families. So in, in the States 25% 25, 25 of women have to go back to work within two weeks of giving birth which amounts to a massive abandonment of our babies they're not doing that because they just want to express themselves through the creativity of work Th- they're going because economically they can't afford not to do so that would be okay G- women going out there into the workforce f- whether it's because of for self manifestation or because of, of economic necessity might be okay if at the same time the other role of absorbing the stress was shared by the genders but it isn't they still have that role And so now you double the stress and what's happened is we're far less united and communal than we used to be there's far less mutual support there's far more isolation there's a loneliness epidemic in this country not just in this country in the globalized capitalist world Min- uh, Britain had to appoint a minister for loneliness for God's sakes So, more stress, more isolation, less support, triple the rate of multiple sclerosis, which the person who first described multiple sclerosis was a French physician in 1870 or 1865, I don't know when, Jean-Marie Charcot, and he said, this is a stress-driven disease. But do you think if you go to a neurologist, let me ask you this question here now. If you've been to, in the last five years, if you've been to a neurologist, a dermatologist, a cardiologist, a rheumatologist, um, an immunologist, any kind of anologist, just raise your hand, okay? Great. Now, raise your hand again if they ask you about childhood trauma. Yeah? Raise your hand again if they ask you about stress in your life. Very few people, relatively speaking. Raise your hand if they ask you how about how you feel about your marriage. Raise your hand if they ask you about how you feel about yourself as a human being. These questions all have to do with your physiology. So, on the one hand we have this increased stress, on the other hand we have less support. That's why we have the rising tide of chronic illnesses. Not to mention all kinds of other factors like poverty and uh, uh, stress-driven obesity, and you know, all kinds of other stuff, you know, and then the junk food that we're fed. You know it's, it's a conglomeration, but as far as the female male distinction, it's because of the extra stress on women in a patriarchal culture
2: you know it's it's interesting listening to you talk about that. I'm thinking about your section on healing, yeah, and you said you gave six questions for self reflection yeah. and four of them had to do with no yeah with uh what, where are you saying no, what's the story behind saying no, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it kind of fits with all of that, that sense yeah. of being excessively self-sacrificial, where are the limits, where are the boundaries. It's, it, it, it translates into your recommendations for how people uh, respond to the stress.
3: Yes, Nancy, and it goes back to the authenticity attachment dynamic, so that uh, when people are desperate to attach and to be liked and to be accepted they will suppress their no, so that they're they're asked to take on something, whether in personal life or on the job. But if they can't say no, because if they learned in childhood to suppress their no, they'll go through their whole lives functioning that way, always at service to others, always being nice, suppressing their uh, unhealthy anger, always afraid to disappoint somebody else, always responsible for what other people feel, they don't say no, the body will say it in the form of illness. And so that's, it's this choice but they, but they keep choosing attachment, not realizing, because nobody's ever pointed out to them, that in a childhood they had no choice, they had to choose attachment, but now maybe they no longer need to. So this exercise is designed to help people find their no, and that no is simply a boundary defense. And if they find that, their mental health and their physical health often improves, guess what? For no surprising reason. So that's why we put that exercise in the book.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating, and it plays out interpersonally, which makes it so much yeah. more complex, right? Because then you're, you're saying that to someone, and it's, uh, then it, that, that sets in motion something between you, which I think is, is challenging.
3: I tell you, there was a study, I think it was in Massachusetts, they looked at 2,000 women over 10 years, they found that those women who are unhappily married but didn't express their feelings yeah. who four times as likely to die in ten years as those women who are also unhappily married but they did talk about their feelings mm. we're not talking trivialities here
2: well, that's, that's part of what's so astonishing. Yeah, um, and and you've been pointing to this all along, but you 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 really tackle this notion of toxic culture in this book in a yeah. more pointedly than you have yeah. in your prior books. What what do you mean when you say toxic culture?
3: Yeah. So um, again, the the metaphor. Well, actually, it was Tom Hartman who's a. Uh, I think he's a psychologist and also a podcaster and an author, and, and he says that a culture can be nourishing or toxic. Now, very literally, in a laboratory, we culture microorganisms, don't we? We put them into a broth that'll eat, that'll support their growth and proliferation. So, if those microbes thrive and proliferate, we can say it's a healthy, nourishing culture. But if that broth was such that the microbes started dying off or started showing pathology, you'd call it a toxic culture. Now, what are you going to call a culture where 50% of adults, are, sorry, 70% of adults are at least on one medication? What do you call a culture in which 40% of adults are on two medications? What do you call a culture where, according to the New York Times headline article three weeks ago, there was about a teenager who was on 10 different psychiatric medications. It's insanity. And this is very common. What do you call a culture? Where more and more kids are getting diagnosed with ADHD, depression, anxiety, where there's these anguished articles in the New Yorker and the New York Times in the last six months about this mysterious rising tide in childhood suicides. Nothing mysterious. The culture is toxic. And it's toxic because. It doesn't meet human needs. It doesn't teach us how to raise our children properly. When I say properly, I mean with the right understanding what the child actually needs for healthy development because it stresses parents, some parents more than others, of course. So this, this struggle, uh, because it tells us, contrary to all the evidence, that our nature as human beings is to be selfish, aggressive, and greedy and acquisitive at the expense of everybody else. Um, look at it. When so- I, this is not, I didn't point this out. I'm quoting somebody. But when somebody does something selfish, what do we say? Oh, that's just human nature. Do we ever say that when somebody does something kind? And yet, if you ask yourself, in your body. When do you feel more at ease? When do you feel more relaxed? When do you feel an easing of tension? When you've done something kind and generous and authentically giving, or when you're grasping and exploitative and, and hostile? That's our nature. That's why we feel better when we're kind. It's actually better for our health as well. So, when you live in a culture that tells you that the opposite is our nature, and its institutions and economic practices and political culture reflects that false view of human nature. You've got a toxic culture with all the effects that we're seeing these days.
2: Well, and you take, you take on these, these big categories, which mm-hmm. we don't often hear a physician take on, and certainly not in the behavioral health space, the socio- socioeconomic system. Yeah. And the political system. Yeah. You say, I, I love this quote. This quote stopped me cold. We are steeped in the normalized myth that we are, each of us, mere individuals striving to attain private goals. Mm-hmm. You're sort of pointing to this pressure, this pressure to sort of comply and join the, the capitalist energy yeah. and, and the, the polarized political space. And in doing so, we set ourselves up. Is how how you talked about it.
3: Absolutely. So here's the thing. Um, The Buddha said 2,500 years ago, he said, contemplate the interdependent core rising of phenomena. He said, think of all the conditions that have to go into the making of a leaf or a raindrop. Look at a leaf. It contains the sky, it contains the sun, the sunlight, the photosynthesis contains the water from the sky, it contains the minerals from the earth, it contains the whole world. And he says, so contemplate the interdependent horizon of phenomena, he says, without the one there cannot be the many, without the many there cannot be the one. Now indigenous and traditional cultures have known this all along. And modern science has more than proved the oneness of everything. And in modern medicine, there's been calls for this awareness all throughout, like Soma Weiss that I quoted. In 1977, Dr. George Engel, a very a prominent American psychiatrist and physician called for what he termed a biopsychosocial view of, human, of health, where, where we realize that the biology of human beings is inseparable from their psychology and from their social relationships, which means that the culture in which they live. Now he was talking pure science. That science has been documented over and over and over again, but medicine still practices as if people were just collections of organs with no history and no connections and no relationships. Mm. Now, a friend of mine, uh, Luis Mel Madrona, who's a Lakota Sioux background partly, um, physician and psychiatrist, I think, he, he said to me that in, Lakota, in the Lakota tradition, when somebody gets sick, the, fa- the community says, thank you. Your illness represents a dysfunction in the whole community. You're the canary in the mind, basically. You're manifesting something about our whole culture. Therefore, your healing is all healing. So traditional cultures have always understood this. Western science has proven it, and modern society completely ignores it.
2: Yeah, it's stunning. I, I'm, I'm struck by, you know, we can't deny if we're talking strictly about behavioral health, right? Yeah. All there's a, there's a rising incidence of all kinds of illness, but we yeah. have these astonishing numbers of increases in depression and anxiety across the lifespan, yeah. and it's really stunning, and, and it makes me think about this, this distinction potentially between a crisis in mental health or a crisis in a system that's giving rise to mental health problems, yeah. right? It's sort of, it seems like you're turning it a little bit on its head Stepping away from the medicalization of behavioral health problems.
3: Well, so first of all, um, what we call mental diseases or mental illnesses very often begin as adaptations. So we we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. By the way, talk about mind-body unity. Women with post-traumatic stress disorder, the more severe it is, the more their risk of ovarian cancer goes up. according to a study from Harvard just three years ago. But we call it a disorder. Well, yeah, but it puts the onus on the individual. Something is wrong with them, they're disordered. Actually, their disorder is a perfectly normal response to completely abnormal circumstances. That's what that is. Depression Mental health disease, mental illness, really? What does it mean to depress something? It means to push it down. What gets pushed on in depression? Your emotions. Why would anybody push on their emotions? Have you ever met a one day old baby that pushes on their emotions? People push on their emotions because their environment, as I said earlier, can't handle their emotions as children. So they disconnect from their emotions, they push them down in order to get ad- adapt to their environment. ADHD, they say, is the most heritable mental <laughs> illness there is. The heck it is. It's neither an illness nor is it heritable. The tuning out by the way, I'm somebody who's been diagnosed with it. Um, the, my first book was about that. And uh, the tuning out it's not a disease. It's a coping mechanism under the conditions of my infancy? What else would I have done but tune out a lot? But when was I tuning out? When my brain was developing. When the circuits of my brain were being formed. So the default setting is the tune out. Now why are more and more kids being diagnosed with it? Because the parenting environment is getting more and more stressed. And when the parents are stressed, the kids are stressed. And when the kids are stressed, one way they cope with it is they tune out. And then we're diagnosing them with this illness and medicating the heck out of them rather than looking at the environment that's causing kids to have to tune out and disconnect from, disconnect from themselves. So that's why I look at the environment. It's uh, inseparable. And I'm not even advocating not to use medications. Sometimes they can be very helpful. I found them that way sometimes. But for God's sakes, let's not narrow the perspective just to the biology forgetting that the biology is actually shaped by the environment
2: our, bi- our biology as an open system yeah this sense that 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 if something's biological it didn't have it didn't have to do with the environment that's right you know and that it's being shaped by the environment all along i yeah. appreciate your saying that you you aren't necessarily anti medication oh. you're, you're you're you you don't You're pointing to these causes, these macro causes, but you're not sort of implying that there aren't things, tools that we use in modern behavioral health care that aren't helpful.
3: No, my problem with medications is not that they're used, but that they're used almost exclusively and not not dealing with the larger issues. So if a kid comes to me with ADHD, um, I may or may not suggest medication. Um, It's never my first choice. But I will say to the family, let's look at the stresses in the family that are keeping this child in this distracted state. And I'm telling you, if you change the family environment, that kid will change. And that's what happens over and over and over again. So you look upon it as this inherited disease, I mean, I won't... Or, or, or depression. You know, people still believe this story that depression is caused by lack of serotonin in the brain. Serotonin being one of the neurotransmitters, one of the 50 important neurotransmitters, chemical messengers in the brain. So we give people SSRIs, you know, serotonin, selective serotonin uptake inhibitors like fluoxetine, Prozac, or Paxil, or whatever, you know, Zoloft, or whatever. And they can help the depression sometimes. When I took it in my 40s, it helped my depression very rapidly. By elevating serotonin levels. But that doesn't prove that the depression was caused by a lack of serotonin. Sure. Any more than if you go to a party and you're sort of shy and reticent and then you have a drink and all of a sudden you become voluble and friendly and sociable. Did that prove that your social anxiety was caused by a lack of bourbon in your brain? <laughs> you know? So that maybe <laughs> that <laughs> or if you take an aspirin for headache does that mean, and it helps, does that mean that the headache was caused by a lack of acetyl salicylic acid in your brain? (laughs) So I we make these nonsensical correlations. In fact, you know how much evidence there is for the serotonin hypothesis in depression? This much. Zero. But by focusing on narrow biological considerations not looking at the fact that people's serotonin receptors respond to the environment and actually uh, and the brain is capable of creating new circuits in response to new experiences why aren't we putting more emphasis on changing circumstances and environments that will help people grow better brain circuits even in adulthood rather than just simply dealing with the symptoms which is all that the medications ever do which may not be a bad thing but as the only thing and as the universal thing to the point where some kids are on 10 different psychiatric medications. It's, well, I was going to say insane, but.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's, uh, it's worse than insane. It, 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 it's, um, it's an almost deliberate, willful ignorance yeah. is what it is.
2: Gabor, I want to give the audience a chance, as, as greedy as I feel wanting to ask all of my questions, I do want to Mentioned that there's a really thoughtful uh, number of chapters on healing uh, in the book, so I really encourage you to to look at those. If you're scanning a 500-page book, add that to your add that to your list. But
3: well, let, I mean, we had to because the, the, the subtitle is trauma, illness, and healing, and, and healing.
2: I thought, so. <laughs> Very thoughtful. I, mean, I want to give the audience a chance to ask some of their questions as well.